0: This is Life Worlds, the place where we explore life through other eyes and minds. Let's flip the script and discover how to orient your world around nature. I'm Alexa Furmanish. Come join me as we get down and forage for fungi, stalk coyotes, draft laws for rivers, hum with beehives, sing bird language, and help beavers to dam again. Let these stories spark your reconnection to nature's multiverse. Learn how to bring ecosystems back to life, become an agent for other intelligences, and begin to see how you too are the sum of all life worlds. Hello, everyone. This is Alexa, and you're listening to Life Worlds. Today, we're going to be talking about fungi and If you've been tuning into the cultural zeitgeist these days, you'll probably have noticed that mushrooms and fungi are becoming quite the rage. Every day I hear metaphors about the wood wide web, or how we're all just like the fungi and mycelium, connected by invisible strands. It seems that something very magical about this kingdom of life has gripped our collective imagination, and I am all for it. I mean, after all, we owe our lives to the fungi. Without them, we'd have no plants, no trees, no food, no animals, no life. As one of our guests will share with us today, without the fungi, you can say goodbye to chocolate, wine, beer, kombucha, yogurt, even baked bread. All the good things. I don't know where I would be without all that stuff. And so it's kind of interesting that despite their burgeoning popularity, science has barely scratched the surface of mapping and understanding the hidden world of the fungi. The more we learn, the more they baffle our minds, the more that they warp our understanding of what is even possible. They've been seen to digest and filter toxic radiochemical waste. We've used their behavior to help us design complex urban transportation networks. They produce thousands of substances that aren't found in any other life forms, some of which can be used to heal mental illness and chronic disease. And... Their prolific exchange networks with the plant roots are like our stock exchange networks on steroids. They essentially are the matter that stitch together ecosystems, sequester carbon, drive global nutrient cycles, and uphold the world's biodiversity. They've also exhibited slightly more troubling behaviors that I hope they don't begin to do to us humans. They have been seen to take over ants' nervous systems and hijack their behaviors to create these very freaky zombie-like ants. So, yeah, fungi. Fascinating, weird, magnificent. And I resonated a lot with a phrase that Merlin Sheldrake wrote in his book, Entangled Life, which said that the fungi are the go-betweens that inhabit the boundary of life and non-life. In short, the entire way that this kingdom sees and lives, its experienced life world, is so entirely different to anything else on this planet. And it's critical that we understand it better, because they do quite literally underpin all of life. This is why I am thrilled to share with you today two very distinct voices who can speak on behalf of the fungi. First, we have Juliana Furchi, Chile's first female mycologist and founder of the Fungi Foundation, which is the world's first association that works on behalf of the fungi to place them in their rightful home beside the flora and fauna kingdoms. Julianne is also Harvard University associate, Dame of the Order of the Star of Italy, and co-chair of the IUCN Fungal Conservation Committee. We will then hear from Sophie Strand, whose poetry quite literally lightens up my day, and some of you might know her as one of the most brilliant rising poets and writers on everything ranging from ecology to myth, mycelium and animism. With Sophie, we'll traverse a terrain of fungal fermentation, compost heaps, deviant animal sex. Yep, you heard that one right. Living with disability, Jesus and the fungal gods. It's a good one today on Life Worlds. So as always, thank you for listening, and if you enjoy these abbreviated episodes, then do tune into the full hours of our guests, which can be found right beside wherever you found us here. Now, on to Juliana Fucci. Hola, Juliana. Welcome to Life Worlds. Thank you very much. So today we're going to be talking about the fungi in lots of different wonderful ways. And to kick us off, I was wondering if you could take us through... A day in the life of a fungi? Like, what's it like to be a fungi? What do they do? What kind of activities would they be engaged in right now all around the
1: world? So, that's actually a really interesting question because it can lead us to giving some context. So, fungi are organisms that conform a kingdom of life. And so, inside the kingdom of the fungi, there are organisms that are very different. So, there are unicellular fungi like yeast. There are molds, lichens, mushrooms, conks, and a day in each one of these is very different. It's, you know, it's equivalent to asking, what would a day in the life of a plant be? And in that case, you know, an algae and a moss, an old growth tree will have different days. But what's common to all of the fungi is that they are organisms that normally live inside their food. So they're organisms that are very intimately related to another fungi cannot exist without another and very graphically. So they are organisms that are never alone. They are organisms that are either assisting the life of another life form through a symbiosis or are recycling energy and compounds on earth through decomposition. I would say that that more or less cover what most or all fungi would be doing in a day. It sounds so delightful
0: to be a fungi.
1: (laughs) You're never alone and you're always assisting in
0: life. How do people come across fungi in their day-to-day life without even realizing what are the kinds of products or things they might see in the world that can be attributed to the presence of this entire kingdom of life?
1: So, for example, if you use laundry detergents that clean in cold water, you're using a detergent that is based on fungal enzymes to clean your clothes without you know, without heat, for example. Metals, if you use copper in any way or form, which we do through so many cables, there are fungi involved in a process to optimize the amount of copper that's extracted from the rock, you know, throughout mining systems in the world. We use fungi in the form of yeast uh, every day and many times a day. You know, if it's either through bread yogurts, kombucha, or like myself, wine, beer, you know, you're you're using fungi. So sometimes you don't even realize that actually without fungi, there'd be no chocolate, no coffee, no bread, you know, no teas, no wine, no beer, and and we could go on. It sounds pretty tragic without them.
0: Well, I was about to say, it sounds so tragic. And through you, I learned this fact that is even more tragic, which is that less than 1% of global conservation priorities are focused on this sort of bedrock of life on these creatures that generate all other forms of life, decompose life, allow new life to be. Why do you think that the global conservation movement that can be so savvy and smart, I think in some ways, has neglected the fungi in its priorities?
1: You know, Alexa, it's actually 0.2%, which, you know, is so much less than one. So it really is a neglected kingdom in those terms. I'm pretty sure that the reason is that until... 2012, there was no environmental non for profit advocating for fungi. Um, there was no non for profit working for the interests of these organisms. If we look at what an environmental NGO does, ideally they will be translating science to policy. And you know, one very clear example of that is, for example, what WWF has done with the black rhino. Right, science was saying the rhinos are in trouble. WWF took that information and leveraged policy changes to protect the rhino. Until the creation of the Fungi Foundation, that had never, ever been a possibility for fungi. We're the first NGO in the world to do that. And and I think that's really the changes is noticeable. Today, thankfully, there are more NGOs working for the fungi. Uh,
0: Something I think is that's so cool that you did with the foundation was basically intervening in the legislation of your own country, which is Chile and getting them to change their laws and to recognize the fungi that was obviously a global first. what did that entail? Like what changed in the government's understanding of the fungi through your work
1: so in the year two thousand and ten, there was an opening to modify some aspects of the constitutional law that mandates what happens with the environment in Chile and when legislation is open for comment or is open for modification, you know anything can happen and and I recognized the chance to propose that fungi be included on an equal footing as plants and animals and to have that happen, you know, it was two years of work, a lot of work in Congress, talking to senators, members of parliament, to their advisors primarily. But ultimately what made the change possible was the demonstration that including fungi in legislation wasn't a huge additional cost, either for the government or for investors or foreign investors uh, in the country. So it was also in response to an IUCN and an OECD recommendation that countries adopt an ecosystemic view of nature. And ultimately, what makes a system an ecosystem are the fungi that connect everything. And and that was how we pitched it.
0: And so you'd say that now the fungi are a little bit more protected by the law in Chile than they were before?
1: They weren't protected by law in Chile before. And today, every single environmental impact assessment to get a permit to impact land must demonstrate there's no durable negative effect on fungi. And that also triggered the need to redlist species to train mycologists. And so we we really took on the integral task and did you know all the steps we needed to today have a very you know successful system with mycologists that are employed, public information systems are generated you know the threat of extinction for these species are evaluated on a yearly basis, and um and ecosystems can be protected because certain fungi may be there or are there.
0: I think what's so interesting about that is. So many young people today, they want to become active in the environmental movement and to do something that's meaningful with their time. And something like changing the law of government or constitution allows for a whole new field and capacity building to happen for people to go and do field trainings or expeditions. And I think it it opens up a whole new world. And it's such an interesting ecosystemic intervention. Um, Let's talk about the expeditions. I mean, What happens when you're out there in the land, in the forest, in the mountains? What's been your experience of going out and looking for fungi? And what kind of sensitivities do you need in in your body and in your mind to kind of do that well? What's it like to be out there? discover a fungi, like maybe tell us some of those stories of, cause I don't think everyone's been on an expedition looking for
1: fungi. Yeah, I, I think <laughs> it's, it's really important to state the difference between an expedition in a warm you know, area of the world and then our cold temperate areas of the world. They are very, very different. So um, I've actually been on expeditions in close to 20 countries over, you know, my career and, and uh, I have lived expeditions that are sleeping in hammocks in the Amazon and, you know, fiending off the bugs. Um, and that's, you know, one story, but what I most love to do is go to Patagonia to the far south of the southern cone of South America, to the temperate old-growth rainforests and the subantarctic forests. The temperatures are extremely cold. Distances are very, very big. And so normally what a serious mycological exploration consists of is, first of all, you carry what you need. There is a very strong notion of self-sustenance during an expedition. So depending on how much you can carry on your back, how much food you can carry, what you need to collect is really how far you can go. And normally there are about two to three weeks. You're carrying a backpack of 25 kilos, more or less. You're carrying your food, your collecting gear, a tent, sleeping bag, only two changes of clothes, one dry one wet. And you're walking in cold conditions, 5 to 12 degrees centigrade in the day. Sometimes we will walk to a place, set up base, and then do short excursions, um, you know, just with day packs. And you're basically looking at the ground, walking very slowly. I would say sharpening your senses to be able to react to odors, smells that are different, um, to react to differences in the texture of the ground landscape. So plants have a certain vibration, a certain color and texture vibration, and fungi have a different vibration. And so you're able to, if you can tune in and you can sharpen that sense you're able to respond to visual signals that are fungal, fungal signals. Um, And then there's also this intuition of a place, you know, and and this happens a lot that you're walking and there is a compulsion to go in a certain direction and you go and you find something astonishing. So these expeditions are normally quite silent there's no music in the forest playing nobody you know nobody's really chatting away we're all very sharpened in our sense of openness to an encounter with a fungus with the visible structure of a fungus yeah and stories there are many i've been lost in the forest for a couple of days you know i've had some funny you know incidents of going into the forest with two boots on and coming out with only one and you know there are so many fun things that can happen one that's actually quite interesting is in, in t- on two occasions i found new species to science when you just you know hide behind a tree to you know have a pee and you know those moments are really really special because you're sort of you're so you know in your biological function and suddenly you look and you're like, oh, you know, that's different. <laughs> it's happened twice. You probably have to be careful not to get too
0: excited with your pants around your ankles and get up and fall over and, and squash the fungi that you just found, <laughs> which is, by the way, what I would do.
1: <laughs> no, the important thing is pulling them back up before you go back to the group to show them, you know, not walking out with the pants around
0: <laughs> the ankles. I bet you there's like a running joke in your team that like, oh, Juliana's going to go pee. guess she's going to come back with a <laughs> new fungi right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What's that encounter like when you find a fungi that might be someone you've never met before, um, or even someone who's new to science? What is that feeling like
1: in, inside of you? Well, you know, Alexa, for me, th- there is no difference between the feeling of encountering a fungus that I know is has most probably not been described and one that is very common. What, With time, I have learned to accept just because it's, it's absolutely, it's unchangeable is that every time I encounter a fungus, I feel plenitude and, and it's a very powerful sensation of plenitude. It's a, it's a space in which everything is okay and really nothing much else matters. And it's very profound and it, it happens, you know, with any fungus, with you know, even when I find, you know, mold on a lemon, I, I, I instantly feel a very ineludable responsibility that comes from plenitude and doing something for them.
0: Profound love. That's such an incredible feeling, even in the most simple mold on the lemon. Do you you believe that there's such a thing called interspecies communication? You spoke earlier about sort of vibrations and intuitions. Have you sensed at any point in time that the fungi were able to speak in their own sort of subtle way to you to communicate
1: something. Yes, absolutely. I have no doubt that there is a form of communication. Uh, You know, referring to what I was mentioning before, sometimes you're walking in the forest and they sort of call you over to a different place. And that's happened from cars. You know, I've been driving and suddenly it's like, stop, go over there. You find the most extraordinary mushrooms and you wouldn't wouldn't know, you couldn't have seen them from, from the car. So those things happen a lot. I, I have no doubt that there is interspecies communication. It's not verbal as in human verbal communication, but there is a communication. And the other thing is that to the extent of how long I've been striving to, to be able to work for the fungi and to the extent of how relentless I realize now, looking back, how relentless I've been, I have no doubt that they chose me because I have tried to rationally do something else, and it's impossible. I can't do anything else. It sounds like
0: this this way of being practiced and tuned over time, and a certain mastery of it must trickle into the, your other ways of being in the world, and maybe gives you the fortitude to run this foundation, which was one of the you know its first in the world, and your ability to listen closely and keep calm and. Do you feel like those those capacities have changed you in day to day life?
1: I think that what I've learned uh, very much from fungi and how they live. One of the things that I think they've taught me the most is how important it is to uh, understand that we can't and we don't have to do anything alone. We aren't separate from another they Question the limits of an individual, and they question the limits of individual existence, right so for example, I see a tree and I see an ecosystem i, I don 't see one species of plant, there are so many fungi you know on and in the roots and in every cell of that tree, so really learning how to understand that we 're part of something and that we, we don't hold an ultimate way that things should be doing, or you know individually we 're not holders of Correct or incorrect way of doing things. We're part of something a lot larger. And the other thing that they've really influenced in my life is how important it is to let things rot, to let things decompose ideas, ideals, uh, relationships. um, Decomposition is the only way we can recompose. And the process of decay and rotting is fundamental to the process of creating. Your question leads us to the question of patents. And I think that the technology being developed inside these for-profit companies have the potential to really change the world if and only if they're not completely patented and prohibited of being shared. I think open source is fundamental. I really do believe that open source technology with nature-based solutions is the way forward.
0: I mean, yeah, two points on that. The fungi are open source. I mean, they are the decentralized neural network of the whole planet and they do not store or keep anything for themselves. So it's kind of ironic to not open source something that by its inherent design and ontology is open sourced. And yet, I think the resistance that you would get to that statement, which is one that I get when I challenge certain startups on their IP and their open source protocols, and obviously the pharmaceutical industry is also... Uh, very rife in this. It's the idea that, well, you know, R&D and funding and all the money we put in, if we don't have some patents or IP, then we're not backstopping our costs. And so it seems like a very tricky uh, dilemma that could be an excuse and yet also has some very serious practicalities that that need to be resolved.
1: Yeah. and, And it takes us, you know, very certainly into, you know, the thresholds of acceptable profit.
0: I think this is a really interesting provocation for any company that's using, let's say, the fungi or other forms of the living world, which I think that those forms of life are the quote-unquote inputs for a lot of systems, to think about a percentage of their uh, profits, a significant percentage possibly, being cycled back into that system and supporting NGOs um, and supporting research groups that they benefited from in the first place. Before we close, for people who want to become closer to the fungi and who want to learn about their world, you gave a wonderful invitation before, which was to walk slowly, observe, try and sense their vibration. Maybe you've got to come across one first and spend time with it, and then you know what you're looking for. How would you advise people uh, to start in their kind of mycological uh, explorations?
1: I think the most important thing is to understand the seasonality of the visible part of fungi. So, you know, depending on where you are in the world, but most commonly in autumn and in spring, you will be able to see them. It's not that they're not there in the other seasons. They're there. They're just underground. So, you know, to avoid frustration of looking without any success, you know, try to understand what season they're visible in, in your geography. And then I would say also don't limit yourself to having to go to a you know a, a forest. You can go to your local park. You can look in your plant pots. You can look in your garden. You can walk through your neighborhood and look in the trees. And in the right season, you'll probably see many of them and what you see matters. The fact that you're having an encounter with that macroscopic moment of the fungus is not trivial. You are in a magical coincidence with the two or three or four or five days that they're visible a year. So acknowledge how important what you see is, and I would say Look everywhere and spend a moment to understand that you're really in an encounter with, with with an organism that's not visible very often,
0: and also maybe that you're encountering an organism that is millions of years old and so ancient, right?
1: Oh yeah, and possibly not even described. There was a new species found in like smack in the center of the city here in Santiago a few years ago. I mean, it's not a given. You know it, what you see really does matter, and and on the Fungi Foundation website, there is a a link to a campaign called What You See Matters. And there's all the steps and all the instructions if you want to, you know, take good photographs or if you want to voucher that specimen to understand who it is. There's a whole tutorial in both English and Spanish, and you can, you know, try to learn and understand what we do when we encounter them. And you can try it out yourself.
0: That was Juliana Frucci, mycologist and founder of the Fungi Foundation. Now we will travel across continents from Chile to North America to join Sophie Strand, poet and author from her riverside home in the Hudson Valley. So I'm going to ask you about fungi and I'm going to ask you about your relationship to the mycorrhizal networks, of fungi, the mushrooms, through the lens of this ailment that you've had in your own body which you've shared and you're absolutely welcome to share a little bit of that, of course, whatever you would like. And then sort of mythologically, like I remember you wrote this thing once that the mycelium are like angels. So describe to us your way of seeing this whole kingdom.
2: Well, I have... Loved fungi and mushrooms for a long time since well before I knew that they were you know the same thing. <laughs> I loved rootlets, I loved mushrooms as being these kind of mutable beings, sometimes good, sometimes bad, very like fairies and it was only in college when I was very interested in mycorrhizal networks and trying to <laughs> mulch Deleuze and Guitari 's very arid idea of rhizomatic philosophy with actual ecology. That I was also diagnosed with a connective tissue disease. So I was finding out that the connective tissue of soil and of ecosystems is fungi and that the very thing that was suffering within my own body was connective tissue. So what I often share with people is, you know, our ailments, our pains, our sorrows are often portals pointing us out of the human into empathy and understanding with another being and another being's experience. So while my condition may not have a cure, I can you know continue to treat it by advocating for the research and the love and the understanding of mycorrhizal fungi. I love fungi. I do. I'm a little worried right now about how sexy they've become and simplified. And I've actually been feeling a little upset lately when I talk about them. Like, oh no, which is I think it's important to say that one. They're not here for us to extract them and feed them to pollution and make them into fashion products. (laughs) And I think that they've been wedded to a kind of techno-narcissism that I'm very allergic to. And also the fact is that there are um, 3.8 million different species of fungi and we've only identified 144,000. So I think we have to begin from humility, which is if there are 3.8 million Different types of fungi, there are 3.8 million different types of fungal stories and ideas and modes. And there's not one fungal story. And if we don't even know a fraction of that, like if we know the tiniest sliver of those beings, How can we pretend to really understand them? So we have to start from an uncertainty. We know certain things about them. We mostly don't know about them. You know, they live in the soil, the darkness of the soil, and they have a lot in common with dark matter, which is they constitute us, but we can hardly see them and hardly understand them. So I have lately been feeling very hesitant about talking about them because they've become such a product. (laughs) <laughs> and such a simplified project, which is they help trees communicate. They will help us clean up pollution. When, when the truth is that a lot of these mycoremedial projects are largely publicity events, which is you actually can't feed these fungi to giant pollution, um, spheres and then expect them to behave like they did in a test tube. And in, they have very different behaviors and wants. And we have to ask them what they want more than telling them what they should eat and do. So, fungi can do a lot of things, but
0: maybe that shouldn't be what we're focusing on. <laughs> I admire you for your territoriality. Like, it's true what you say. I agree with you. And it gets to the core of this podcast, which is what is animism and then how does it affect our actions in the world? And as you say, like, when we become utilitarian with another species, just like we, when we become utilitarian with another human, we're no longer respecting its fundamental, intrinsic desires or wants or ways of being, and yet they are incredibly healing. And so the question is, how can we work with the fungi? And I, I think one of the things you said once, right, which was flood the world with a biodiversity of stories. So it's not like, oh, let's just like replace the myth of you know choose your choose your element of the world. No, flood it in with other stories. So I'm wondering if you're taking your advice in this way, how could you or people who are allied with you, like myself, flood the world with stories and ways of being with the fungi that would pull them away from that sort of usage by techno utopianism and the climate movement?
2: I think that thinking with fungi is more interesting than using them. And I think that this is one of the, th- the reasons why psilocybin has become a complicated terrain for me to speak about and within, which is, you know, psilocybin grows on cow shit. And I live in a country that is built on abusing cows (laughs) and torturing cows. And I, I think that it's important that, you know, Alexis Shotwell, who's an amazing anthropologist, talks a lot about how with food, With lifestyle choices, we're very simplistic. We, you know, have a very straightforward object ontology. Like, I know what this object is. This is good or bad. But the truth is, objects and beings come to us through webs of relationship. And I think with psilocybin, I want to say, you should be very careful taking psilocybin if you are not in right relationship with cows. (laughs) So it's Mm. like things like that that I would like to complicate, which is fungi are relational. They live between species. They are interrogative. I call them angels because the ancient word for angel in both Greek and um, Hebrew and Middle English all mean messenger, which is they come from the realm beyond, the other world, the imaginal, the underworld, the mythic realm, you know, whatever you want to call it. And they come to bring advice for us above ground, the surface dwellers, as the Haida indigenous people would say, you know, the people who who don't know really what's going on because <laughs> we're just on the surface. And I think the fungi, mythically thinking with them, have information for us about how to act that has very little to do with our human aliveness, but with the general aliveness. So the story I'm interested in is we start to look at all of the connections that bring fungi into being, that constitute them, how do we become more culpable the more involved we become with them? How do they teach us to become involved in general aliveness rather than in this very narrow idea of
0: human survival? How would you advise someone to approach a fungi in in this way, in the way that you've learned and cultivated? Like if someone's starting from scratch, where do they even begin? They're like, okay, that sounds really wonderful. I want to try that. What do I do? (laughs) Well, here's the thing. Fungi are ubiquitous. They're everywhere.
2: So it's also interesting to just figure out which fungi are in your neighborhood. There are some polypores that are active all year round. You know, they grow like conks out of trees, lichen is the composite of bacteria and yeast and fungi. So any kind of emerald green viridian little spiky scale is, you know, a fungal being. And one very simple way I tell people is, you know, fermentation is a fungal story. And fermentation, as it relates to alcohol and also fermented food, may be a driver of of the choices of civilization, you know, we can really tie together moments where civilization blooms with fermentation events, with breweries and beer vats and with the domestication of yeasts. And yeasts are single-celled fungi. So sometimes I tell people that the very easiest way to begin an animist, intimate, you know, anarchic experience with fungi is to begin fermenting. And a very easy way to do this is to make mead with honey and water, In a jar that you close and shake for a week every day. And you will make the oldest, one of the oldest forms of of a fermented beverage. That's how you make mead? Yeah, it's that (laughs) easy. You can look it up online. But you become a fungal accomplice. And I think that my favorite way of thinking about fungi is let's be their accomplice. And and let's be their accomplice in, in digesting this patriarchal, colonial, capitalist structure from the outside.
0: This idea of compost, like landscapes have been transformed, they're being transmuted, they're changing. You write a lot about compost. And I would be amiss if in this conversation we didn't touch on what that is for you, something that is transmuting, transforming, decaying. Uh, And as we look out at the world, I think we see a lot of that happening.
2: Well, on a very practical basis... I think that we live in an antibiotic culture that tries to manage by process of negation and sterilization and management and shaving down, and it seems that pretty clear that that doesn't work culturally, medically, <laughs> um, institutionally, and that I'm much more interested in processes of addition of adding enough stuff to a pile that perhaps the bad pathogens you know, the bad thinkers are overwhelmed and then also get co-opted into more fertile conversations and sprout things they never would have expected to, to sprout. Um, so compost for me is this moment where rot, where um, a slurry of everything, where no one's excluded, but also no one is highlighted, sprouts something new. But also, you know, we live in a culture that's very inside of chronologic time And a very simplistic idea of Darwinism, that everything is moving towards some end, that everything is progressing towards betterment. And as someone who lives in a body that is only going to decay and is in the process of decay at a much higher, much more accelerated rate than most people, I have to begin to think about myself as a compost heap, which is, yeah, I'm very noticeably decaying, falling apart, but that, that actually might be a very fertile generative place to be. And that I might not be sprouting stories that I get to live, but I might make myself into good soil, good compost for other people to grow something. And, you know, I think that's how many different indigenous cultures think, which is, you know, how is, how am I making myself a good ancestor? How are my decisions opening up the way for other people and beings to live? So I think compost works in that way. In another sense, I think that we Are stuck in this relatively recent Eurocentric idea of climactic ecosystems and the fact that you know things are supposed to stay the same. And the truth is, the ecosystems and trees are constantly migrating and changing. And invasive keystone species are coming in to clear up pollution and shift things. And the climate is always changing. You know, it's changing in a way that's very human driven right now, but it has always changed. And um, I think that compost, not not, not compost, but but letting things decay and change and intermingle is a way of creating more resilience in the face of unpredictable changes. Stories from 300 years ago from our ancestors aren't going to help us to live in cities where we're breathing in smog and we have microplastics in our bloodstream. But the truth is that storytelling until until pretty much 2,000 years ago was considered to be oral, adaptive, and always changing. Relational. It happened in the moment, in the connective tissue between two people, that the breath that also had spores and, and pheromones and funk in it. And so I think that we can compose stories by saying, okay, we can't get rid of our Christian upbringing, but can we mulch it with all sorts of other things to see if it can sprout something that would help us live in this very culpable, polluted,
0: chaotic time what kind of stuff do you see that that's doing that that's mulching and and bringing out some of this more uh i don't know that this new kind of matter
2: well i actually think interestingly enough that zoom and skype um and that I I think that there's a lot of demonization of technology and actually those narratives often become very ableist because then it's saying like all the people who are alive because of technology should be dead. (laughs) Like, I'm like, you know, you've got to be more nuanced about this. You know, I am alive because of technology. Um, And my career is also alive because of these anarchic fungal connections I made outside of dominant paradigms through, you know, the mycelial hyphal intelligence of the web. And so I actually see one of the ways that stories are cross-pollinating and changing each other is via these connections that aren't bounded by our narrow cultural ideas of who gets to be inside of a conversation.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Something that's also really struck me about your writing is you've learned the names of so many things, like you're a total biology, ecology geek. (laughs) (laughs) you are you know and 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 that's why i love your writing because you bring in the names and i remember somewhere that or maybe it was in a a call we had previously where you mentioned that you greet everyone who's within a 20 mile radius of your home and maybe you could describe that practice like what did it mean to learn the names of the people around your home the people the the more than human people the natural people the animal people the plant people like, what was that process? And then what is your practice to kind of embed yourself in a place through through knowledge?
2: You know, I was always interested in learning the names of beings that I had a relationship with. And not the, like, taxonomical, Linnaean colonial extractive name, but, like, a name that denoted kinship. Whatever name, like, the herbalist told me, I felt, my friend said, this is what we commonly call Doc, like Big Leaf, you know? And so I think I've always been trying to get more familiar with my friends for many many years but there came a point where i was really really overworked and the work was mainly on my computer <laughs> and i was living out middle of nowhere working all the time writing all these books under someone else's name ghostwriting them i wasn't feeling like i was getting to experience that kinship that was so lived and innate when I was walking and hiking all the time. So instead, when I would wake up in the morning before I went to work, I would summon by name every being I could remember. And then this began to... Work alongside in a very synchronous way, an herbal apprenticeship I was doing, you know, my love of mycology and mushrooms and fungi. And so I started to learn more names and develop more relationships. And it was a way of actually weaving me back into family. That it was a moment when I felt very abstracted and alone. I was in a Very complicated relationship that had isolated me from my friends and my family. And suddenly I was weaving myself in this anarchic, more than human way back into kinship. But in a very practical way, every morning, I still do this. And in fact, it's much more intense now. It's so long now. It's like a mantra. Um, Every morning I wake up, usually with the dawn, a little bit before, and I make my coffee and I sit and then I summon by name, you know, in indigenous folkloric beings, landforms, microbes I know, infections I've had, <laughs> ancestors, both human and non-human, um, you know, secular saints of mine, um, plants, invasive species. I summon every being that I want to know is part of my decision-making process. And I think that's the most important thing about it is by the time I enter into my, you know, public persona of making decisions, paying bills, doing podcasts. I know that everything I say, every decision I make, is not bounded by the fiction of individuality. It implicates and affects a whole vasculature of kinship.
0: I love that you let you call in your posse. I mean, I, I want one of your friends who's an artist to sit with you one morning and note down all the names and to do a painting of you surrounded by everyone who you call in, that would just be... I love that. (laughs) You have to send us one of your friends right now. And I think that that is a practice that, you know, for anyone who's listening, like just trying that um, has been transformational for me. And I know that um, I've shared it after even we spoke with a few people and they're like, that is phenomenal. And I want to try that practice that this girl recommended.
2: Do you mind me asking who are, like, who are two beings that come up?
0: It depends where I am. the last home that I knew really, really well, which was the last place I felt truly grounded. It was longer ago than I would like it to be, but um, that's just been the situation recently. It's the squirrel. Oh my God, squirrels. They're such incredible creatures and they're feisty and cheeky and intelligent and lithe and acrobatic and sort of territorial. So the squirrel's always very present. And the oak tree, because of the food that it brings to an ecosystem and how throughout the year, it's bringing all these different forms of life and the contortion of, of the shape of the branches and, Those were two that were very present for me.
2: That's so beautiful also because, you know, they've shown how intimately wedded the mast years of acorn production and squirrel populations are coordinated. And so they're actually, like in, in a slightly more abstract way than say lichen, they're very symbiotically united, the squirrel and the oak. So that's
0: really beautiful. That's so interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't really have a squirrel without an oak tree or vice versa. Thank you for making me see that. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast and stay tuned for a fresh episode coming out in two weeks time where we'll be talking finance for nature. As per our tradition on the show, we're going to end with a fun fact to bring us into a rather unexpected life world. So it turns out that humans aren't the only ones who farm fungi for food. Colonies of ants actually create these little farming gardens in their underground chambers where they keep hungry fungi hooked on chewed up leaf cuttings that they have salivated, munched on, and regurgitated. It sounds absolutely delicious. And they feed the fungi this leaf cellulose because they're not able to digest it themselves, but the fungi can. So the fungi break it down into carbs, which the ants can then eat, and onward goes a very mutualistic relationship. So the next time that you see little ants marching towards their caves, holding up leaf cuttings, you can think that what you're actually seeing is a living pathway of fungi food. That's it for me today. I would love to hear from you. So please reach out to me on the website, lifeworld.earth, where you can also find all of the show notes and an open source library ranging on everything from ecology to technology and life at large. Subscribe to the email list and I will see you back here soon.